Welcome to the Confident Man Podcast, empowering men with the confidence they need to live their adventure. Now, here is your host, David Maxwell. Hey guys, welcome to the Confident Man Podcast. I am so glad you're here. This week, we begin an interview we do with Jody Dice. Jody's a friend of mine, and Jody's story is unique. The story of where he began and where he ends up, I think is fascinating. So I wanted to share that with you guys to encourage you. Some of you are in the middle of your journey. Some of you are are maybe going through some tough times. I want you to hear Jody's story because I think it's really going to help you. Jody uh, is a friend of mine. He's worked with students for 20 years ago. He started on just a volunteer basis uh, while he was running a business. And then that moved into where he's traveling now throughout the U.S. He's a presenter at middle school and high schools. He also does training with first responders. He does presentations in front of the state legislature. Jody is a big deal because he's helping to combat human trafficking. Now, Jody didn't start out wanting to help combat human trafficking. In fact, he wasn't even looking for that. But now he's doing that and it really fits who he is and what he does. And so I thought that journey would encourage you in your journey where you're at. And uh, I think hearing from Jody is going to help you see that, you know, There is light at the end of the tunnel sometimes, and maybe you're discouraged right now. Well, listening to Jody's story, I hope will encourage you. I think it will and encourage me, and I can't wait to get to it. So here it is, our interview with Jody Dice. All right, welcome to the Confident Man podcast. And uh, Jody, I want to welcome you to it today. Uh, Dave, thanks for having me, man. I'm I'm excited. I've been listening to it, so now I get to be on it. That's the cool now part. Now you get to be on it. You're famous now. Um, well, here's what I want to do. I love the story of your journey. And for those in the audience, uh, I've known Jody for many, many years. Uh, we've worked together. We've done a bunch of stuff together. But one of the things I enjoy most about him, one, is just the intimidation factor, because he can do everything I can't do. And um, But the other thing is... His journey, I think, is a great story for men to hear, uh, kind of where he came from, where he ended up. And, and so, Jody, why don't you give us kind of a version, um, kind of your story. You know, you graduated high school, kind of where you went on the journey and then how you ended up to where you are today. Yeah, yeah, I was probably like any other high schooler. You kind of thought you knew what you wanted to do when you when you got out, you know, Um Originally, I thought I was going to be a D1 football player that uh, started putting in the time in peewee ball all the way up through uh, junior high and high school till I got injured, uh, took a hard back injury in football. And then we transitioned into, well, uh, football is not going to be it because I don't like getting hit no more. <laughs> uh, I transferred to from a smaller school that had a really good athletic program to Meridian High School where I wanted to start taking drafting. I always liked drawing and stuff. So in Votech, my first year in 10th grade, I remember taking carpentry so I could even learn how to read blueprints, right, and build off of blueprints so that I could draw them to that point. And in the next two years we uh, of high school, I was taking drafting. And uh, my senior year of high school, I met this little sophomore, pretty little girl, and we got to chatting it up and started dating. And then so knew that uh, we couldn't go much further than where we were at unless I uh, went on to college and let her finish high school. So I went into a local community college taking drafting and design. 
And um, in that, I really got really good and understood structural engineering really well. And uh, it was a crazy time because I cut my index finger on my right hand off during college at my dad's shop. And so uh, there was this new drafting thing that was coming out at that time. Used to, we had to use parallel bars and pencils and yeah, yeah. <laughs> angles, you know, <laughs> 45 and 30 degree angles and stuff. And uh, this new thing coming out called CAD had just really started making wow. it big in college. And so since I couldn't draw because this finger was all whacked off, uh, I started doing all of my classwork on CAD. I even set it up for the college and stuff. And through that, I did all my classwork. So when it come time to actually take CAD, all I had to do was pay for the course. My instructor's like, man, you ain't even got to come. <laughs> You've taught me how to do it. So don't, don't worry about it. Yeah. When you set it up for the school, that kind of sets you up in a good way. Yeah. And so during the process, man, I, I wanted to get my, my AA's degree in there and transfer to Mississippi State, uh, though I'm an Alabama fan. I wanted to go, uh, Mississippi State had the best engineering program and I wanted to go up there and, and take engineering. But I had a little issue in high school. Um, I was already working for a, um, an engineering department in the structural steel industry. And so we were detailing things. We would take the blueprints and detail them to where the shop could build each piece of metal that was going into a building. And, uh, dude, I kept failing public speaking, failed it twice in college and <laughs> could not get my degree. So I, I actually just said, you know what? I'm making good money in the engineering department. I love this little girl. I asked her to marry me. Um, I can make a good living just as a steel detailer at one of our local steel shops. It's really close to structural engineering and then piddle at my dad's shop with it if I need to. And so that's kind of how we, I got out of, out of getting a degree. Um, and in fact, my instructor says, bro, whatever you do, you better find a job. You never have to talk in front of people. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's going to come up so good in just a little bit when you tell everybody what you're doing. Yeah. And so uh, from there, went into the structural engineering department. Uh, we were married, my wife and I, Wendy, we've been married this year, it'll be 33 years. And um, uh, it was no, uh, let me back up. It was September of 91, the, the steel industry tanked mm. and um, construction market just bottomed out. It was bad. And uh Steel company I was working for I had to file bankruptcy. And so you come in and there's two boxes on your desk and drawing tables for you to pack your stuff up and, and mm -hmm. a lot of cash that was your back pay and basically said, see you later. And here I go from that to changing oil for my father-in-law. He had an oil change place. So I had mm -hmm. to, to make ends meet there. And uh, and we're my wife's pregnant with our first child in the middle of all of this. So here I'm making twice as much money in the steel industry that I am now changing oil with a baby on the way with rent and a car note and stuff like that. And a uh, guy in our church actually uh, owned a dental lab. And uh, Danny asked me, said, Hey bro, you want to learn a new trade? And he said, because uh, of your drafting background, you've got good visualization. So I think you'd be good at it. And so uh, I said, what is it? And he says, well, I make dentures and partials. And I was like, I don't think I can tell you about them. They come in and out of people's mouth and they chew food. I'm open. Yep. Let's do it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so I went to work ground level at this dental lab and worked my way over 20 years in that dental lab up to the, uh, I was ultimately the general manager. Um, 
And then from there, went out and opened my own dental lab for five years as I was accepting the call into uh, uh, U.S. missions. Now, during that 20 years of dental lab, basically the dental lab supported my habit of youth ministry. So I was yeah. a volunteer youth ministry at several churches, part-time at one. And, and so uh, uh, the dental business helped pay for my habit of working with students. You know? yeah, yeah, working in the church. <laughs> yeah. Enjoy. Oh, was that difficult when you started doing that? Like you had to start speaking. Is that what kind of trains you to speak? Yeah. Um, I, re I remember the first time when I went to, I w it was different. Uh, the youth group that I first started in was under uh, an old couple, um, um, Reverend Douglas and, and Eunice Stone. And basically as you sit in a room and you just talked, you know, around mm -hmm. a table, it wasn't like, a service like we would see today, you know, where you're actually up on a platform or something. And so that I was cool with. Okay. I thought that was kind of the way that I was going. I can talk in, you know, in a, in a relaxed setting. And, yeah. um, and then it came time that uh, the pastor said like, Hey, I'd really like you to preach a service for me on the platform. And I'm like in front of the whole congregation. He's like, yeah, <laughs> we don't do half congregations, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. um, so my first sermon lasted maybe five minutes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I would say I started getting more company speaking in front of people through ministry, you know, speaking in church and, and yeah. in the youth groups. And um, I don't know, there was a, I, I remember there was a night that I realized um, I think I want to talk to people the way that I like to be talked to. Mm-hmm. I don't, you don't have to be this guy that's super dynamic on the stage or something. You just need to be a real guy. Yeah. And so I've always been very transparent with the way that I speak and present. And um, that way, if you meet me off stage or off the platform, uh, I'm still the same person. I still yeah. sound the same. I'm still talking the same. So there's not like, oh, well, you know, your, your voice is deeper when you're on stage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't change your voice. Right. It's all the same. And, so, yeah, that was where it kind of trained from there. And uh, uh, so I enjoyed youth ministry. I, mean, I thought I would be working with that. Um, never really saw myself in full-time ministry till I went into a program called Youth Alive. Mm -hmm. uh, we started uh, the Youth Alive here in the state of Mississippi and Louisiana. And uh, that was a whole new process. Um, if you want to be stretched, uh, start raising your own budget that pays your yeah. salary. <laughs> yeah. Or doing work that pays your salary on every week. And uh, But I've loved it. To me, that's been the favorite thing because I've made such connections around the country with people. Yeah. And, um, it's funny. I can go anywhere in the U.S. and within two hours of where I'm at, I have somebody if I needed something nearby. Mm -hmm. And that's just that whole itineration process and meeting people. Yeah. And uh, from that, we we were going into schools, doing school assemblies. Uh, we walked through a very tragic time in 99 when Wendy's sister got killed in a car wreck. In fact, um, uh, April the 2nd, just a few days ago, was the anniversary of her death. And mm -hmm. um, she's the reason we started doing school assemblies. Um, okay. We started talking about things so that she was killed in a car wreck by a guy high on crystal meth had hit him head mm -hmm. on, killed her boyfriend and best friend. And so we just took that story and said, you know what? I don't want no one else to suffer like we suffered. And so we kind of built a school assembly around that. And so that was the school assembly and the seven project was a strong part of Youth Alive. 
Okay. So I really love that. I love helping students reach their own campus as campus missionaries and the campus clubs. And through that, Free International contacted me in 2012, fall of 2012, that the Super Bowl in 2013 was coming to New Orleans and that they wanted to uh, develop a school assembly program that brought attention to human trafficking. And man, I had another one of those stretching moments. I had no clue what I was getting into, didn't understand human trafficking, Uh, but we got built a school assembly program. It's very similar to what we were already doing uh, Mm -hmm. with videos and multiple presenters and, uh, you know, almost 40 grand in sound and lighting video equipment that we would take into these uh, school assemblies. And uh, then we started, I started seeing what real trafficking was like. And it wasn't till uh, we found a 14 year old girl in um, South Mississippi uh, that was being trafficked. Actually, we were doing a bullying school assembly when I left New Orleans and came back to Mississippi. And then this 14 year old come up that was contemplating suicide uh, because her mom had been selling her for four years to men uh, mm-hmm. to support mom's drug habit. And, uh, and you can testify to this, that little girl seemed to be always the focal point of my conversations. It was just like everywhere I'd go, everything would drift. The conversation was that always drift back to that. Yeah. And so we transitioned from youth alive to free international uh, in the fight against human trafficking then and I've uh, been doing it ever since. Well, to me, the, the thing that I love about it is the way, you know, failed public speaking twice. And now you've spoken in hundreds of schools. You do presentations in front of people all over. You've yeah. even, you've done a lot of stuff with politicians and presenting and, and like, the houses and stuff like that, haven't you? Yeah. Um, to date, I've trained over 5,000 fire and EMS workers. I've trained uh, over 2,000 law enforcement officers around the country. I've spoken to over a half a million students through the school assembly program since we've launched Say Something. Um, yeah, I've, I've actually, I get called to help with legislation here in the state of Mississippi when it's involved in on anything involving human trafficking. And so, yeah, I've had to speak before the House of Representatives and the Senate, uh, State Senate. And uh, you want to talk about intimidating. You know, here's these guys. (laughs) Most of them, these men and women are lawyers or have a law degree or PhD. And here's this guy going up there that couldn't even get his AA degree. (laughs) (laughs) They're looking to me for advice. So Yeah, yeah. As you're speaking to them, the thing that kept you from the AA degree. You're right. That's so cool. I just, and that to me is the wild story. You start, you know, uh, drafting steel industry that goes out, you're doing dentures, then you're doing, uh, you know, youth ministry on the side, school assemblies, and now you're helping human trafficking victims and training. And, and that to me, talk a little bit about what you do with the EMS and the first responders, what you train them for, because I don't think a lot of people would understand what they would be as far as human trafficking. I would say probably fire and EMS are my favorite trainers. Uh, we now have over 540 recoveries nationwide, our teams do. And um, I, a large percentage of those are being located, and we're working those cases through fire and EMS. Uh, when fire gets called to a restaurant, to a home, to an accident, uh, they're there by invitation of emergency. 
-hmm. they're not law enforcement, so they don't have to have a search warrant. They have the right and freedom to walk all over a house to check things or a business or um, go through ID and anything, especially if you have um, um, on-scene victims that are unconscious and stuff. So they're, they're trying to find the IDs of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but with that, we train them on red flags to look for on the scene, whether it's labor trafficking or sex trafficking. It's not just the sex trafficking side of things. Mm-hmm. And uh, they go in, fire inspectors and fire marshals, they're going in places making sure that, that businesses are protected by um, uh, the law on fire. But we give them a few more points to look for. Mm-hmm. If you see any of this, it's a strong probability that uh, uh, human trafficking is happening on the premises. Yeah. Um, we can't order anyone to go in, We, uh, but uh, they can go in on their own. If they see this, then they can make the call. The other thing is, is fire and EMS, especially firefighters, they can hold the scene as long as they need it. Uh, when, they are, when they show up on a call, it's their scene. It's not law enforcement. It's nobody else. It's the fire department scene. In most cases, fire will release the scene to the first responding police officer. That way he secures it or whatever. But if they suspect that human trafficking, domestic violence, any of that is going on, um, they can hold the scene to the right investigators are on scene. Okay. Okay. So it doesn't get lost in the translation between uh, a patrolman and an investigator. So they can hold the scene, even if they wanted the state Bureau of investigation or the FBI, they can hold it that long. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that makes it where it's really, they actually can uh, key up on something and make sure that uh, who's there first. The other thing is they're firefighters, they're lifesavers by, by nature. Yeah. And so victims are a lot less guarded, if you will, if, uh, if police shows up on the scene, than if a mm-hmm. fire and EMS shows up, you know, it gives them that opportunity yeah. to, to tell what's going on and get the help that they're needing and things. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I remember some of the stories you telling me of inspectors, even here in our local area who were doing a routine inspection at like what I think it was a nail salon and, and discovered back rooms and, and they, they, they wouldn't have known it unless you had taught them what to look for. All right. I've gotten, I got that call and they're like, Hey man, we just went to this training three weeks ago and this is what we're finding. And I'm like, well, you better call the FBI because this is what we got. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's get back to the journey a little bit. Um, you, you kind of, I mean, you had time to think back on this journey, what you went through. Uh, why do you think that journey was your journey? When you look back of it now, how do you see the way you were being prepared to do what you're doing now back then when you thought, you know, what am I going to do? You know, I just lost my job and, and all these things happen. Why do you think you needed that journey for you? First thing is, um, I would never have done what I'm doing now then. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a dad of daughters. I had small daughters at that time. You know, my daughters were being born uh, around that, that time frame. I would not have been in a good place mentally to deal yeah. with that. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that I'm in a good place mentally half the time. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not then. Um, But the other part was um, now there's a lot of problem solving that we have to do. You're you're gathering evidence, you're gathering things. And I've always been a natural researcher by nature. Okay. Whatever a topic is, I'm a rat rotter and I've watched so many YouTube videos on the way just a, a 
particular part of a vehicle's built just so mm-hmm. that whenever I was building mine and it's just what it is. And so I can look back through the process from uh, even the drafting side of it, just that natural design of things and, and creating things. I actually used that technology to help design two of our largest mobile command units. Uh, I designed okay. them myself, but uh, then uh, just looking through the dental business and stuff got uh, and, and I make no bones about it. God put me where I am mm-hmm. and uh, God directed my path to be around certain people. There, there yeah. was mentors that I needed in my life that, that would help me that I didn't realize I needed them in my life, just to be mm-hmm. honest, because yeah, I was good up a lot of times. Yeah. And um, so whenever I went into the dental business, I went from a very, the steel business and even uh, the oil change business and automotive business was not a healthy environment. There was a lot mm-hmm. of um, a lot of bad habits and things going on in that world. I struggled with pornography about that time frame, and and it was a struggle that I had to fight for a long time. And getting out of that and moving into the dental business was kind of a help with that because now I was put around the the owner of the dental lab uh, that Steve that owned the lab was a Baptist evangelist. That I mean. God taught me how to tithe. Well, I've been raised yeah. in church my entire life, but here's this guy at my job, my boss, that's teaching me the importance of tithing and um, how to work with people to ultimately manage people and, and mm. manage business and manage things. And so uh, without being able to get my degree, yeah, <laughs> earn my degree in business, if you will, by running businesses, mm-hmm. um, I learned how to manage people by working in a business and, so these were all steps along the way uh, in that I can look back through the times of just something here, something there that was always a little bump in this direction. Yeah. Um, just something that, that, that brought attention that, that, that got my eyes. And so the process of getting to where I'm at today, I never saw what I'm doing now anywhere in the, in the early stages of the dental business. Mm-hmm. At that point, I'm thinking, I'm going to keep working until I find that full-time youth pastor. Yeah. And, and I'm going to be a youth pastor until I'm 90 years old. And they roll me out of the, uh, the youth room on a gurney, you know, because I don't kick the bucket in youth service or something. Yeah. And um, at the same time, um, God had a direction that he was taking me but there were some things I had to learn along the way. And there were some mm-hmm. things I had to get out of me along the way. And, yeah. And a lot of that was stuff that, that came through that process. And once it all kind of came to a head, it was a tough time. There was a lot of rough edges that had to be knocked off and it hurt getting those rough edges knocked off. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, I, I, and we may talk about this in a minute, but I just remember one of my worst struggles, which was the pornography, when it finally came to a light, my wife found out. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a mentor at that time. We both uh, 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 had a, a couple that we totally trusted uh, about things um, and loved them dearly, loved them, loved them dearly, the Tillmans and um, both Clarence and Sister Teresa, they, these people are, they'll, they'll never know what they mean to Wendy and I. But um, I remember whenever it came out, you know, Wendy was done. She, she was done. It was over. We're, 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 we're finished. To me, I was like, thank God 
because it was yeah. a burden that I had been carrying. It's not like well, I just love pornography. I, I love looking at these images. No, it was a it was a psychological issue and an emotional mm-hmm. issue that, that was driving me to that. And I was not brave enough to get help. Mm-hmm. Now I'm forced to get help. Yeah, yeah. And um, that was a process that needed to be addressed then because I couldn't be in the world that I'm working today and still be struggling oh, yeah. with that stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, because uh, the two go hand in hand now. And that yeah. was the other part. Once I realized that how much pornography funded the human trafficking industry, I had, to, I had a lot of guilt in the last few years that I finally had to just sit down and talk with some people about that. And I'm like, I know I can't go back and fix what I did in the past. Yeah. And how much, you know, um, free, uh, the free porn that you find online, those ads are paying uh, for these victims to be abused online. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They look like they're enjoying it. They look like it's a fun thing, but they're surviving on screen is what it is. Mm-hmm. And um, I struggle with that issues and stuff. And so that process of coming through that, having someone that walked that process, my wife and I being able to go through it together, heal together, um, sleeping in another room for several months. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> From that's the reality. Point, yeah. Uh-huh. And, um, and she was fair with that. I was, she, she, I was, there was nothing that she could say needed to be done that I would ever argued with because she was fair in the assessment and the fact that she gave me a second chance and had grace over me and mercy over me for that. uh, I've always been forever thankful, but it helped me to appreciate a hug. Yeah. Me to appreciate holding her hand. It helped me appreciate Mm. the simple contact with her that I had now lost and I had to return the right to have back. That that was just all part of the journey, you know, of getting here. Mm. All right, we've run out of time on today's show. Uh, We're going to continue this interview next week with Jody. Next week uh, is really good. He's going to give us some specific details on some specific areas that he grew in. And I think you're going to love it. So check it out next week for part two of the interview with Jody Dice. We'll see you then. You've been listening to the Confident Man Podcast. Click subscribe so you don't miss a future episode. You can connect with David on Facebook and Instagram at David the Maxwell. Find resources to help you as a man at theconfidentman.me. That's theconfidentman.me.